Go to BallCancerSucks.com. They got shirts. They got hats. They got fucking kazoos. See what they got. If you like something, they give you 20% off. Go to the box and put BB20, and there you go. Read what they got to offer you because you might be walking around with a bad fucking nut. You know, when I went to uh, Atlanta, Neil Diamond was coming like three weeks later. So if he was selling out where the UFC was, Neil Diamond still has motherfucking fans. Oh, I want to go I didn't, see him. I didn't fucking that. know He's that. I didn't know that. He's actually playing at the Hollywood Bowl. I want to go dates? see him. What dates? Just tell my wife. Yeah, oh, in August sometime, yeah. Yeah, I didn't Not know August this. Nights, That's yeah. 17,000 seats. Neil Diamond hasn't come out with a good song since uh, Hello, Babe, Hello. Neil Diamond had some... <laughs> Neil Diamond, oh, my God. What about if you can sing like Neil Diamond? I love fucking Neil Diamond. Neil Diamond was the What's shipper, you know? your favorite Neil Diamond song? He's got a couple of them. I think they slip out. I got to go home and look them up on YouTube. But I guarantee you go on fucking YouTube. Like the other day, I was watching. Uh, I was watching uh, Dark Shadows, uh-huh. and uh, great soundtrack. I mean, it really is a '70s soundtrack. You know, T Rex and shit, heavy duty. But one of the songs they play, one of those Carpenters songs. You don't know how good the Carpenters are until you hear one of their songs. Like right now, if we're talking and you quiz me, I think about we've only just begun. Mm-hmm. Which is a beautiful jam, but they have thirty-nine fucking thousand songs. The Carpenters and the Carpenters get you on a different level because you listen to her sing, and you go, "God damn, that bitch was good." Then you cry because she's dead. That bitch died like a fucking skeleton. She went, but listen to those and she played the drums. Did you ever hear fucking Karen Carpenter play the drums? Oh yeah, I've seen the videos. Yeah, you've seen the videos. So <clears throat> it's really amazing that she's fucking gone. But there's one. Tomorrow something that was in that soundtrack. I forgot all about that song. Another jam that was on there was fucking the fat black guy. My first, my love, my everything, Barry White. Oh, Are you yeah, fucking yeah, yeah. kidding me? Like, you never think of Barry White. Like, if you see him at Kmart, you're like, ah, I don't need Barry White in my, <laughs> in my car. Pick up a Barry White greatest hits because I came home that night and put that song on. Uh-huh. And when you put Barry White in YouTube, you get his 12 fucking jams. You know, you get everything. But the most notable ones, I'm like, Barry White had eight fucking animals, like in a row. Uh-huh. Whatever, whatever. He's got that slow one where uh-huh. you just feel like fucking somebody in the what ass. What about if you sang like Barry White? That'd I can't sing crazy. like Barry White. I got to <laughs> gain 50 can. more pounds to help the full patois of Barry White. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but it's amazing when you hear that type of music and you're like, like Neil Diamond. I couldn't tell you. I know that there's the one song. About hello, hey, hello. Yeah. That's a beautiful fucking song. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, I tell you who I like too. Barbara Streisand's touring this year. They want all the dough for that bitch. I mean, you're going to pay all the dough because she's marketing genius. So you would love to go see Barbara Streisand? Fuck yeah. She's oh, yeah. got like two or three jams that aren't bad. Yeah. Well, listen, when I, you ever go to somebody's house and their mom listens to a particular fucking song? Oh, I know. When I was a kid, my mom was, there that's what I'm saying, there Neil you, Diamond. My mom, like, go. Neil Diamond, Glenn Campbell, you know, Tony Orlando and Don. Don. There you go. <laughs> you know, I used to go to this kid's house to eat all the time, and his mother played. Like, I knew who Donna Summer was. Donna Summer did at that time, you know, she did Love to Love You, Baby. You were in the sixth grade. You whacked off to it because she was moaning in a fucking song. Nobody had ever done that, mm-hmm. moan like that in a fucking song. And, you know, she did a couple other songs, you know, for a while, like in the late 70s. She was a star, but I didn't really, you listen to Led Zeppelin, Donna Summer, and I would go to eat at their house, and she had the same fucking eight track in there for years. <laughs> From 79 to 82, that bitch had the same eight track in there, and it was uh, 
Barbara Streisand's, oh no, Donna Summer's Greatest Hits, Volume 1 and 2, uh, with, with when her and Barbara Streisand did that duet together. It's raining, it's pouring. Oh, My no. love life is boring. <laughs> Me to tears. That's no. a jam. That's a jam. Oh, that's, no, it's That's a jam. And she took it to the next level. But you listen to Volume 1, Greatest Hits 1 and 2. You'll say, Joey, you're out of your mind. You put that on and you clean the house. It's natural adrenaline. Donna Summer was on a different fucking level. But you don't know it until you get the Greatest Hits album. Uh-huh. You know, I don't know how a regular album's are. I'm no fucking album you know, executive or whatever the fuck the word is. You know, <laughs> kind of sewer. Kind of sewer. But I don't I know that the greatest hits. But I remember falling in love with Barbara Streisand over that album, her song with uh-huh. her. So I went out and bought the album Superman, which that's a great album. I, well, I didn't tell my friends I uh-huh. bought the album Superman. That's the shit you put at the bottom of the pile in the closet. Don't you remember? Barbara Streisand Superman, she had that one song. Uh-uh. And now I love, I always loved you. But my heart belongs to me. All that shit. You know, I well, my only memory um, or my first memory of Barbara Streisand when I was a kid was this movie uh, with the Owl and the Pussycat, or what was that movie she was with? It was that George guy. What's that, up, Pussycat? What's up, George Pussycat? C. Oh, that's a great yeah, movie. That's a cute movie. Because my dad owned that drive-in movie theater, yeah. and for some reason he would play that all the fucking time. Who like did she marry? Summer. She married somebody that she put in a movie with her, uh, Prince of Tides. That was her son, real son in real life, and he's somebody's son. Is it Elliot? Elliot Gould, Gould. Yeah. yes, Elliot Gould's son. Yeah. Elliot Gould. But Barbara that's Streisand. A, that's listen. a different taste to if you're into the Elliot Gould. Thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the <laughs> whole fucking. Specific. It's so weird. Like after I heard that Superman album, I got a flavor for who Barbara Streisand was. And that night in the Oscars, when they had Avatar, and then they said, "Coming up to the stage to present the Director of the Year, Barbara Streisand." My knees went out from under me. A, because I know what it costs them to put that bitch on the show. Because that bitch don't leave the house for nothing less than like 200 Gs. And just because when she comes out, that's heavy artillery. That's Liza Minnelli type shit. Those bitches just don't come out. Elton John shows up. That's too big for Barbara Streisand to come out. Barbara Streisand don't come out by herself. Other three or four other fucking high-level motherfuckers have to come out. If you think that Angelina Jolie's high-level, mm-hmm. you don't know who the fuck Barbara Streisand is. <laughs> Barbara Streisand could fucking stand next to Angelina Jolie and tell her, guess what? Kiss my toe. Kiss it in front of everybody. And Angelina Jolie would have to kiss it. That's how strong she is. People don't Can know you it. people believe that Joey Diaz loves Barbara oh, Streisand like this? Listen, I respect women for what the fuck they are. Like, I, I, you think I'm fucking with you. Barbara Streisand <laughs> is a bad... Did you see opposite... This bitch is a singer. Did you see opposite Nick Nolte and Prince of Tide? She ate him up. Yeah, Nick Nolte yeah. had nowhere to go. Yeah. He had nowhere to go. He had to play some fucking half a fag from South Carolina. His wife was leaving him. Buying Tide and shit. What the fuck is wrong with you, you big dummy? When the father used to beat him up. Barbara Streisand ate his shit up. She wouldn't give up the pussy. Not till the end. He had to teach Elliot Gould's son how to play football. That's Barbara Streisand. <laughs> uh, what's happening, Felicia Michaels? Oh, my God. You are just the most ridiculous creature. It's fucking true. What's up with you? You looking all dialed up lately? Um, you're dating somebody secretly. Somebody's giving no, you a stabbing no, secretly no. off the books. A hockey, a, sadly, there hasn't been much A hockey there, coach yeah. or something. No. I know something's up. What's going on with you? You've been all dialed <clears> up. <throat> Just been, trying to know summer's coming. The other day you had a skirt on and kept trying to peek in the monkey. You wouldn't even give me any daylight. Yeah, what well, type of I friend are you? You know what I'm saying? Jesus Christ. I'm a good friend. Christ. I'm a good friend. <laughs> These uh, women wear skirts. Nobody shows you a peek anymore. 
I was at Starbucks the other day. This chick was hot in her little miniskirt. And I sat there for an hour and I was hoping I had those 3D glasses they had in the 70s. Uh-huh. She wouldn't bust that fucking monkey open. I knew she was a freak. Just give me a little shot. It's the afternoon. I'm sitting over here having a little latte. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> Eating a fucking... Uh, <laughs> And Anazette Biscott, and you don't want to show me that little monkey. Come on. It's wet, and that's how I like it. I want to see those pubic hairs wet oh like, my God. like they were playing basketball and shit. You shave your monkey, Felicia? Do I shave my monkey? Yes. Yes, I shave my monkey. All the way? Bone dry? I, You know, I like to mix it up. Okay. Do you yeah. leave like a couple long hairs? Because I like the long hairs. Like I'm, No, I don't leave the long hairs. Like an hairs. eyebrow. You know when an eyebrow goes wild on an old guy? <laughs> like that. Sometimes you look down and you're like, what the, the fuck? Fu- yeah, you need that. You need a little hair something to keep you entertained you know yeah, what I'm saying yeah I don't like the bald monkey look but I know that you're old school so I figured you just kept well the, the f- bald monkey look is just so unattractive we've talked about this to death but it's just not attractive I, I mean you know you know a penis is attractive so. and when you shave it it gets those fucking things and little pimples and yeah, white heads yeah. I can't eat pussy when you got a white head on your snatch <laughs> I just can't I want to pop it in the back of my mind I can't eat and rest till I pop it my heart on won't be complete you know, when you go to a strip club, everything's beautiful. I always look for the pimple. That's why I stopped going What's to a strip club. What's wrong with you, Joy? <laughs> every time I go to a strip club. looks for the pimple. You got to look for a pimple because yeah. every stripper always has a little tiny white head on her ass. Very tiny. <laughs> tiny, like and there's those tight ones. So all you got to do is just squeeze it once. It'll pop. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh, I love you, Felicia. You know that, right, cocksucker? <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> just a little white head I like that you know when you're eating pussy a little white head after they sh- you know when you shave and you get that little yes, razor I burn know what you're talking you know what I'm talking about don't make you get little white you get little white heads on your monkey it gets bad you get little white heads on your monkey not on the monkey but to the, the side, side of the monkey yeah. do you to put aftershave or something like that do I put aftershave on yeah, my monkey? Yeah, that's what'll kill it. You don't put fucking aftershave. That's on your the word monkey. on the street. A little aqua, high karate <laughs> and shit. Yeah, do not put that's the aftershave yes, on. you do. No. After you shave it, you put a little aftershave and it keeps it tight. That's the word on. That's what dog. That's what fucking the Kardashian's mother does, Kris Jenner. Because I read an article. Well, I what you put a little old spice. Yeah, on splash it, <laughs> and put the round. It burns for two minutes. It's like it getting there. It's like fucking a guy that had a lot of coke it last sears night. It. Yeah, it sears it. And that's it. Smoke starts coming off. Yeah, of fuck it. it. Who cares? At least you got like a brand on there. High karate. Got like a little Chinaman throwing high the swipe. High karate on my pussy. <laughs> on my pussy. <laughs> I know. Why won't anybody kick it? <laughs> <laughs> That's how desperate I am. I should put some high karate on my pussy. Maybe then. <laughs> Why won't anybody kick my snatch? I had high karate on it to the gills. You know what I'm saying? High karate on my pussy. Oh my God. Today we have a beautiful guest, a friend of mine from Chicago. He's a head writer on a couple of shows, SVU, Law & Order. Uh, Suicide Kings. Now he's got a new project he's working on. I just thought it would be a good idea to have him on the podcast. Let's give him some love. Mr. Mick Betancourt. Badass Puerto Rican representing. Talk to me, Mick. Boricua and Irish. Holy Irish shit. Thank you guys for... <laughs> I looked Re- at him like, he's Puerto Rican? And Irish. Tremendous combination. Oh, oh really? Puerto Rican Now, who's the Irish? Irish. Uh, my mother was Irish. God, God was may Puerto she rest Rican. in peace. She and she away. was the real blood of the family. No, she. my parents were 16 and 17 when I was born, and uh, they split up right away, and I moved in with my father. My father got custody of me, so I didn't even meet. I was in a, I thought I was black till I was seven, 
legit. Like uh, I didn't speak Puerto Rican. I didn't look Puerto Rican. And we lived in a neighborhood in Chicago called Humble Park. When you go into that neighborhood, there's a giant Puerto Rican flag, like a sculpture that you drive under to get into the neighborhood. And uh, we shared a house with a black family. And the kids were Tyrone Dude and Bebe. And that's who I hung out with. And I talked like a little black kid and acted like a little black kid. And my dad died when he was 22. He, uh, I was six when he died. And uh, my uncle came and basically kidnapped me. My mom's brother basically came and, you know, in a good way, kidnapped me. He goes, if you don't fucking get out of here, you'll be dead in a week. Because my dad was the only one. Everyone was kind of addicted to drugs, a lot of heroin, a lot of cocaine, alcoholism. So he was the only guy keeping an eye out for me. So once he died, and he was in the morgue for three days before anyone even thought, anyone seen Big Mickey? Anyone seen Big Mickey? Second day. Big Mick? Nobody? Big Mick? Third day. All right, start calling the, you know, the jails. Start calling the lockups to see if we can find him. Couldn't find him. Hospitals wasn't there. Last stop was the morgue, and he had been there for three days. And what did he die from? He got electrocuted. He was uh, sauced on the train, uh, running through the cars, pulled the ball, the little red ball, like the emergency stop ball, fell out and hit the third rail. Oh, my God. Wow. Jesus, Mick, you're the fucking savage. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And was it your father? I'm sorry, that was Puerto Rican or your mother? Yeah, my father was Puerto Rican. They called him Big Mick. Big Mick. How did he end up in Chicago from Puerto Rico? No, his his father was from Puerto Rico. Okay. And uh, so he was, what would that be, first generation? First generation. Wow. You're like Puerto Rican like my son is Puerto Rican. Yeah? Yeah, both my sons are half Puerto Rican, but one looks Puerto Rican and the other one looks like you. Yeah. That's, yeah, so I, I, this was, uh, it was a huero, you know, just a white guy walking around this Puerto Rican neighborhood. It used to be Polish, but there was white flight, you know, late 50s, early 60s, throughout, and by the 70s, it was just entirely Puerto Rican. So what happened when your uncle took you? He took me over to the Irish side, which lived in a neighborhood called Berwyn, which is right uh, Austin Avenue, is, or Austin Boulevard, it's the dividing line between Chicago and the beginning of the suburbs. But not a lot of people know this, but Capone actually really wasn't allowed in the city. So he ran Chicago from a neighborhood called Cicero. So he lived in Cicero, and a lot of the soldiers, like the lower-end mob guys, were in Berwyn, which is the neighborhood that I moved to. <clears throat> so there I was. I moved. I didn't recognize my mom when I met her. You know, my uncle was kind of talking her up. Oh, she's a good lady. Everything's going to be good. And I'm hysterical because I'm leaving my neighborhood. And he's like, oh, there's a YMCA there. You can go swim and play basketball. It'll be great. <clears throat> Pull up, walk in. I see my mom, four-foot nothing, red-haired pugnacious tough Irish lady covered in freckles and so I pop open her fridge pop open the quart of milk start drinking it and it was sour it was curdled so I spit it on the floor and by the time I looked up she'd already cocked back and just blasted me landed right on my ass I look up at my uncle and he goes good luck <laughs> and he fucking left how old so were you? Like six? six yeah wow and she raised you alone? she uh my grandfather her father on the Irish side owned a two flat so he lived upstairs, and my mother lived downstairs, and then I had another uncle named Tommy who lived in the living room that was kind of walled off in my grandfather's apartment. They didn't get along very well. No brothers and sisters? I, uh, I had a half-brother. At my dad's uh, funeral, his girlfriend found out she was pregnant. So I have a half-brother, and uh, it would be, yeah, it's called half-brother, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a half-brother, and through Ancestry.com, I tracked him down, and I got what his name was and then I, I google it and the first thing that comes up is mugshots.com and he's locked up down in florida so uh yeah i called my pal who i grew up with and he goes what'd you think he was gonna he was gonna say yeah hey bro come down to naples and get, hop on the yacht yeah. <laughs> like no one got out no one got out except for me now where's your mom now 
she just passed away. She passed away around Thanksgiving of uh, cancer. Yeah, we didn't. We weren't on good paper, but we had uh, probably about twenty years went by. We didn't speak, and uh, when I found out she was terminally ill, I reached out and we we uh, we mended that. And um, yeah, she, drugs and alcohol took her down pretty good. She uh, she got convicted of robbing a bank in Chicago, and she did uh, almost three years for that. And um, got how old out. were you when that happened? 27. Holy <laughs> shit. Jeez. So she raised you all those years after six. Uh, she, she, was, uh, she had some problems with drugs and alcohol and some mental health issues. And she would take me out drinking to the bars with her. You know, I'd have my Catholic school boy corduroy pants on and my mustard yellow shirt. And I'd be drinking at Manhattan's till 2 a.m. at shit bars on North Avenue called Tootie Toots. Listening to Debbie Deb Lookout Weekend. Smoke machine going off. I go to school the next day and they're like, today we're going to... Learn about cursive. And I'm like, if I, can, I got home two hours ago. Is this necessary? You know, like, why can't I print? That's legit. You know, like, I I didn't. Uh, so after a while, to answer your question, um, she didn't have the life skills to really raise me. So I started going upstairs because I wasn't eating, knocking on my grandfather's door, who for a while wouldn't even talk to me. He'd call me the kid because I was cut with Puerto Rican. And he's, you know, Chicago's not the most racially sensitive town in the world. But I'll never forget the Black Stallion was on that movie with Mickey Rooney and the little kid and the horse. And he had a, everything happened in the kitchen, tiny little kitchen. There was a little mini bar that a TV was on top of and two lazy boys in the kitchen facing, <laughs> facing the television. Right, and so then. I just jumped in one of them and we watched this movie and I was crying and he kind of ruffled my hair a little bit. And it was like this unspoken thing that, all right, we're going to hang out, I guess. He says, you could stay up here tonight if you want, because I know staying down downstairs is kind of hard for you. And so I wound up moving up there. And he raised you after that? He raised me till I was uh, 13. We'd go on walks at night, and he was really a guy that, uh, you know, he was a World War II vet. I found out later, you know, he had been sober. I watched him go out and drink twice for, you know, one or two days and then go back into what I realized later on was AA. And uh, he was the nicest guy, I'm telling you. Like, he taught me how to box a little bit, run, be a man, what to do, what not to do, how to hold myself, and... One day in uh, June, it was really hot, and uh, I went into his room, which was across the kitchen, and I thought we were starting to wrestle, and uh, he had a heart attack, and he died in my arms, and that was probably the roughest thing that uh, happened to me up to that point. Went downstairs, banged at my mom's door, telling her her father's dead. She opens the door. She's drunk. There's a naked guy on the on the uh, kitchen table, literally passed out with a bottle of booze there. And it's funny. Well, it's not funny, but I mean, you know, you're hearing this for the first time, so I'm sure it's a lot more tragic. I lived it, and it's I've had some distance from it, so I don't mean to be callous. Like it doesn't. I understand the words that I'm saying, but I often wonder now, as I'm a creative person and I tell stories for a living, you know, that right now somewhere there's a guy going, you know, I fucking I, I picked this girl up at a bar. I pass out naked on a kitchen table and I think it's not going to get any fucking worse and this little kid starts banging on a door saying her father died so I had to grab my shorts and get the fuck out of there, you know? Like, none of it. No, is you know, like if you build a family tree, everything off of these experiences seemed so insane at the time and so now that I have my own kids, you know, I'm like, they won't live a day like I lived. Not a fucking day. I'd kill somebody. <laughs> I'd kill them cold, you know? Do you think it was your grandfather's idea that you were uh, taken out of the situation you were in? Uh, yes, I lived with my grandmother on the weekends too, and she was great. She her life was kind of severely impacted by uh, the alcoholism of my 
grandfather, her ex-husband, but her son was also murdered uh, over on Austin Boulevard. And, uh, you know, my mother was alcoholic and had some mental health issues, and her other kids did too. Tommy, who lived with us, had MS. He was a pathological liar. He'd come out, you know, waiting for my grandfather to leave so he could talk to me, and he'd say, you know what I used to do? I used to be a helicopter pilot, and I'd land air conditioning units on the top of the Taj Mahal. And I'd be like, oh, okay. But even at like 10, I'm like, fuck, this guy can't be legit. You know, like, yeah, I started to go, I think the people around me are fucking insane. <laughs> Which is a weird realization to have because uh-huh. you can't go. You're there, you know. How did your parents even meet? Uh, at a party. They were just at a high school party and they hooked up. And one thing led to another, as tends to be the case with 16-year-olds and 17-year-olds. And nine months later, I was born. And, I, and you know, there were two other, my mom had two abortions, one before me and one after. So there's a reason I, I do not take this life for granted at all, and I haven't for a very long time. Wow, how interesting that your father's the one that had responsibility up for you up till that point. And I just got the divorce uh, papers and everything from her when she passed away. Actually, after she robbed the bank, my uncle and my aunt had to go clean out her place, and I got a bunch of the paperwork, and she saved old baseball cards that I had, you know, and I thought she could give a shit, you know, but then you, you get a little perspective, time heals all wounds, you know, I got a little older, I started to have kids of my own and seeing how difficult it is and I can't imagine being a parent who is addicted to drugs and alcohol, bipolar, manic depressive, possibly schizophrenic, single mom, trying to raise a kid. How did she rob the bank? With a note. Did she have a weapon? No, that's why she, if you have a weapon and there's a threat of violence, that's when you do serious hard time. But if there's no threat of violence when you go in to rob a bank, you can, you know, probably get away doing three or four years, which is still pretty substantial because you're doing day for a day. You're not, you don't get any time off because it's a federal federal offense. Yeah. When she robbed the bank, her state was, that was 30 years apart, and obviously that led to her robbing the fucking bank. There was what? It was 30 years of partying that led to her robbing the bank. I mean, she was yeah, in bad she was shape broke. when she robbed the bank. <laughs> yeah. or... All my, my grandfather uh, did seven years of a 15-year sentence for armed robbery, too. And my, uh, you know, everybody in my family has a, I, I say they're like uh, poet warriors or poet savages. They're all smart. They're all very artistic. My grandfather painted the Mona Lisa by looking at a picture of the Mona Lisa. My mother showed in an art gallery. My other uncle's a very talented writer. But, you know, in that voice, when someone slights you and there's that voice in your head and you go, I'm going to fucking stab that motherfucker in the neck. And then you say, hey, crazy voice. You know, I'm sure I could do that, but I'm not willing to accept the consequences of that. So I'm just going to let this guy go. They don't ever get to that point. It's like, think, do, think, do. And so, thank God I got a little Puerto Rican in me because (laughs) there's no doubt in my mind because I went down that road for a little bit. You know, I had to test those waters. And those waters are not for me. I know guys and I know guys that swim in those waters and they're very comfortable in it, but it's not for me. So what was your uh, uh, who or who was your lifesaver at that point after your grandfather? Um, my aunt, probably. I lived in that apartment almost for a year and a half on my own. My mom was downstairs. She was dating a guy that was uh, beating her and I would get into scraps with that guy and the cops would come take him and. After a while, she just kind of moved out. She was really bottoming out at that time. And then I just lived in my grandfather's apartment and no one claimed me. So I enrolled myself in high school and uh, got a job at a restaurant so I could eat. And then um, midway through my freshman year, I just kind of crashed. I couldn't really do it anymore. So I moved in with my aunt and uncle. My uncle was very kind. He brought me in. He already had two kids of his own. He was struggling with a lot of mental issues. 
And uh, so I lived on his sofa for about a year. We wound up moving back into my apartment because we got kicked out of the apartment we were in because we couldn't pay the rent. So now there were five of us in that kitchen, basically. And um, then, you know, my aunt was always very kind. My aunt still to this day is a real example to me. I consider her my mother. I call her my mom, my aunt. And um, I consider her children, my brothers and sisters. And I always use her as a benchmark for forgiveness, kindness, just really a way to love people that I had not experienced before. I mean, a legitimate, genuine, kind to the cellular level of her DNA. Like when she gives you a hug, it's like, you know, that's it. There's nothing else going on in the world, even to this day. And that's from a big heart and a kindness that emanates from her. So that's who I really, my grandfather, my aunt, my grandmother for a period of time, my uncle. You know, I lived in 15 different places by the time I was 18. Okay. It's a crazy thing when you're surrounded. I have mental illness in my family. When you have a mental illness and you're one of the only individuals that isn't touched by it, like there's a sense of guilt to it in a way. Like how genetically did I not, for yeah. me there is like, wow, I can't, you know, I feel bad that I didn't get that, but fuck y'all, I'm out of here. Did you have any of that? Or like how, how, did, you, how did you even? I feel now I've been sober for 10 years. No drugs, no alcohol. I've, I've not smoked a cigarette in almost nine years. <clears throat> but I feel that um, at certain times, and, and, I, and I don't, I mean, I've seen social workers, priests, psychologists, because of just what, the way my childhood was. So I don't know, to be honest with you, if I've completely escaped. Um, I think I have. My real survivor's guilt comes from the kind of success that I'm feeling in, in my career right now. And there's a there's a remorse that I can't really share that on a fundamental level with my family. It's just not possible, you know. So it's just not something I can do. So I do feel that. Yeah, that's a terrible feeling. Yeah. What yeah. happened after high school? I got a full ride to uh, three colleges for for writing and for teaching. So I was actually teaching seniors in high school, uh, creative writing when I graduated. I was 18, teaching 18 year olds, like student teaching, but kind of teaching. It was a pretty advanced program at the time. And I went to, uh, I went to, I wound up going to Loyola University. I, I visited three other schools. I got into Northwestern, I, th I think University of Chicago and Loyola. And I visited, the other ones were great, but Loyola looked like it was gonna party. You know what I mean? They were drinking, there was, but my first day there, I saw all the kids, they had haircuts, they had nice backpacks. I'm sure they had, you know, parents they could call. and. I was totally fucking intimidated and felt a sense of loneliness that uh, only alcohol could really, you know, I poured alcohol all over that. I just felt like, you know, these kids all know what the fuck they're doing, and I didn't. And I went and I, you know, I got kicked out of my first dorm. I got written up the very first day I was there. I got in a fight the first week, got kicked out of that dorm in a month, got kicked out of my second dorm in three months, and then the university's like, you can't fucking come back here. <laughs> you can't, like... You, you, you don't give a shit about school. And I didn't. So I just bounced around. I partied in that neighborhood for a little bit. And then I got a CDL truck driving license. And I, well, I managed a pool hall for a little bit. And I was starting to uh, write. I know, just for myself. I thought I'd be a poet like, or, or a novelist like Jack Kerouac. And at some time, somehow, some way, I'd get to New York. Because I really wanted to live in Greenwich Village and just write really sad you know, Joycean novels that were abstract and, you know, so deeply philosophical that only the truly enlightened would ever be able to get into them. 
But all I was doing was sitting on a fucking bar drinking, telling a sad, you know, sad stories. In high school, was there a particular book that spoke to you or gave you hope? Or I mean, that's a pretty big leap from the beginning of your childhood to getting a full ride at Loyola. I mean, was what turned you into a writer, or what moment did you have that realization? I had always written. There was something about it that um, was very liberating. That no matter what circumstances that were going on around me that I couldn't control. I could write something down on a paper and be in complete control. And so there was something very liberating about that, that I could escape, I could escape through reading, but more importantly, I could write anything. And I always tell people, especially people that come from really rough backgrounds that don't feel like they can be creative, the pen is mightier than the sword, for sure. And I'll usually just rip a piece of paper out of a notebook and write down, where are we going, Mars? All right, here we are on Mars. I'm, 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 my feet are starting to leave the ground. I'm holding onto the spaceship. Like, if you wanted to shoot that as a movie, that's $100 million. You know, you need actors, you need a director. As a writer, you can write down on a piece of paper, do anything, be anything, go anywhere. And I find that the most power, powerfully liberating thing that there is. Was there ever a point, and sorry, I'm a person with always a million little Please. questions, but who uh, recognized that first about your writing ability? Um, there, were, there were nuns, or there were teachers in grade school that reluctantly commented on it because I was a savage in grade school. It was very difficult, but part of going to the high school that I went to, which was a very prestigious high school that legitimately probably saved my life, um, because I had to work there. I actually worked at the school. I worked before classes start. I worked there during my lunch, and I worked after school. I got to meet the teachers there on a personal level. So they weren't just this abstract version of authority. They were actually human beings. And there was a, a teacher there named Dr. Plopolis who uh, had a PhD in classical literature that um, he reached out and, and he, you know, there's these God shots that I have throughout my life where, I, you know, if it weren't for this guy giving me a card on my birthday that said, follow the West Wind, which I still have now, you know, writing a letter of recommendation for me to help me get the scholarship, I wouldn't have had the collegiate experience, even though I took it for granted, you know. So I would say Dr. Plopolis for sure in high school. Wow. Yeah. Then I drove trucks for a little bit. I got a job as a Teamster. I was riding in my truck doing Second City at night. That's how Joe and I met doing uh, stand-up. And, um, so you started stand-up in Chicago? Yeah, stand-up in Chicago. When did you decide to come out here? Uh, and I did the Chicago Comedy Festival in 2000. Did very well. 2001, I guess, I got what you could call discovered, where there was a Fresh Faces and actual industry was there, which never came to Chicago. You know, they'd come, Saturday Night Live would go to Second City, but there wouldn't be, like, agents and managers en masse there. And... Um, there was some agent at Paradigm signed me there and flew out to L.A. to screen test for some movie. And then I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to do this or not because Chicago's a very comfortable, you know, there, there are shows every night in Chicago. Then 9-11 happened. I watched the second plane go into the tower and not to personalize that tragedy, but, you know, there were a lot of immigrants in my life and they said this is the greatest country in the world and you can do whatever you want as long as you're willing to work twice as hard as the hardest person you know, hardest working person you know. And so I was working at the airport at the time, too, when it was chaos. I mean, every airport thought they were getting attacked. I drove to the airport, and I said, I'm done. I'm, I'm leaving. And they're like, you're a teamster. You've got a great job. We'll take a leave of absence. Come back in a year. You can get your job. And I mean, I was, it was still to this day one of the best jobs I had with some of the best people I've ever worked with that I'm still in contact with. In L.A.? In Chicago. Oh, Chicago. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And because uh, I hadn't moved out to L.A. I came out. I took meetings. They went great. And uh, I said, I don't know if I want to move. 
you know? And then I watched that second plane going, and I go, I, got, I have to move. I must move. My fucking relatives moved from other countries here for a better life. I can't move to California to really go for it, to try, to at least push myself, to test myself. And uh, as soon as the planes were up, I was out. I moved out here. What was your wildest intention when you moved to Los Angeles? I had hoped to be like Jackie Gleason. And I knew nobody. I, knew, I had my agent that I had just signed with, but that's all I knew. I knew Dwayne Kennedy, who was a comic from Chicago, who had come out. He did like a co-star on Seinfeld and had done The Tonight Show, but that's all I knew. And so I hoped to come out and be a, a, a Farley-esque actor or a, like, a, a, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little, I was a little bit bigger back then. I was around 242, so I was a heavier guy. And um, I just wanted to come out and be a comedic actor and then eventually write and then direct. Ideally, and I wound up doing stand-up on TV. I didn't get a lot of. I got no roles as a comedic actor on television, but I started booking roles as a dramatic actor. And then I met a writer of one of the dramas that I acted on, and he and I wound up selling a show together. And that's how I got in my foot in the door as a dramatic writer. What was the show you sold? I never got made, but it was a show called Duke Finney, and it was with a very kind, patient, talented writer named Vincent No, who wrote a movie called Tonight He Comes, which eventually became the movie Hancock. And um, I booked a role on a, a pilot called Fearless, which was a Bruckheimer pilot that never went. And he and I remained in contact. And I said, uh, you know, I know a lot of comics when they say, hey, come see my show, come see a set. You go see them. They get off stage. They bombed. They fucking ate it. And they have this huge smile on their face. And I'm like, did you fucking see that? How great was that? And there's this disconnect between the reality and what they want it to be. And one of my greatest fears is to be that disconnected from what's actually happening in my life. So I said, Vince, you're a drama guy. I have an idea for a drama. I'm not hitting you up to sell it to you or to do anything with it. I just don't want to be that guy. I'm going to tell you something I'm very passionate about. Please tell me if it warrants it or whether I'm being delusional. And he goes, shit, I, he goes, that's a great idea. I'd, I'd like to go out with you on that. And I didn't even know what that meant. So we had to go pitch the show. We pitched it to his production company, the studio, and then the network. And we were on our way out. I mean, my wife and I, my son was one or two all credit cards maxed out I didn't have I had a 94 Cavalier I didn't have gas to get in the car to go from Van Nuys over the hill to CBS Pico to pitch the show she said she thought there was a credit card that she didn't activate that might be in the file cabinet it was actually in between two files I called the number on the back and we're a week from having to leave I mean cheesy Hollywood story I call the number and they're like, we sent that card to you two years ago. I go, I swear to God, it's an emergency. Put $30 on the card, please. I got to fill a tank with gas. I got to go do this thing. So they go, fine, 30 bucks, that's it. I race over to the gas station. I fill the car up. I get over, we pitch it by the farmer's market. Cell phones off, everything. We get by the elevator and David Zucker, who's this great guy that shepherded the, the, the script, goes, hey, congratulations. I go, did they like it? He goes, no, they bought it. Because he went back in to see mm -hmm. And I go, no shit. I'm chewing this fucking side of my cheek because I don't want to break down in front of these guys. <laughs> I go into the farmer's market of those telephones, those pay phones in the back. Got to call my wife, collect, ball, and they bought it. Just got another little chunk of change to put in the bank to keep us out here for another year. <laughs> it's a scary story. story. Yeah. <laughs> and that, and now that show didn't go. So what was next? Um, I wound up using that. Well, the weird thing is, is I co-wrote that with Vince. So a lot of people thought, oh, well, here's this rough kid, 
you know, that just got brought in to write the punchy street dialogue, but Vince and I legitimately wrote it right down the middle. So I had to then write what's called a spec script, which is like a writer's calling card. It's basically the writer's audition. So you write a spec script of either an original piece of work or a show that's already on. I wrote an episode of The Shield. And it's funny, I didn't know, you know, I knew the script that I wrote, but I had never written for TV before. So I bought a DVD collection of The Shield trying to catch myself up and trying to figure out how to write it. And at the end were DVD extras that said, in the writer's room. So I go, oh, maybe they'll talk about how to, how to write a TV show. So Sean Ryan starts talking and I freeze frame it and behind him is a board with index cards that say act one, act two. And I counted the scenes. And so then I got out a legal pad and I wrote act one, act two, act three. And I put squares for how many scenes there should be. And I used that as the template to to write my first spec script and um, I used that and got in and uh, wound up getting a job that I worked on for three seasons on Law & Order SVU. Wow. <laughs> so I wrote and produced on that. I left that as a co-producer then sold another drama to um, NBC that I created that never went. Worked on Detroit 187, Breakout Kings and now I'm uh, going to be a uh, co-executive producer on a new show that was called Indebted. It might be Mob Doc. It's uh, Josh Berman and Rob Wright, two amazing guys that uh, I'm really excited to work with. That's going to be coming up on uh, Fox this fall. And that is my story. Do you, <laughs> do you ever just like, and I, I'm sorry it sounds so lame, but pinch yourself like, fuck, I can't believe it. Every day. I don't take any, uh, I don't take anything for granted. Ever. And, uh, I'm blessed to have two healthy children. My wife and I have been together for 19 years, married 13, uh, Wednesday, this Wednesday. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, you know, and she's put up with a ton of shit. She saw me drinking for nine of that. I've been sober for 10 of it, and she's another great example of forgiveness and patience and love, you know. She gave me a thing. Uh, I turned 10 years sober on the 27th, and she gave me this little placard that says, uh, you're my happily ever after, and uh, it just blew me away. So I try to act as if that might even be possible every day. <laughs> you know, I want to try to be the guy she thinks I am, I guess. Is what you know, I'm it's saying. amazing. When we started this podcast, it was just Felicia and I. We started incorporating guests. And I got to tell you, every time a guest comes in here, I, I'm blown away. Like today, I'm really blown away because you said something that was really interesting. You know, you said that uh, there's times you talk yourself out of things. Yeah. You know, you already know what the result is. You know, somebody says something to you when you're a kid, and Felicia calls me and says, "Some guy just smacked me at the bar." You get in the bar, you get in your car, oh, and on the yeah. way to that bar, you already know. You already, it's like you already put the pieces together. I'm gonna get out, ask Felicia what happened. I'm gonna punch him in the head, kick him in the leg, hit him with a chair. You already think of all this shit, and then you're right. Comes a time where you actually go in there and do it because you've already painted the picture. Yeah, it's it's not doing it. It's talking yourself out of it, and. uh one of the scariest situations in my life was I grabbed a gun to shoot somebody. And I remember, like, before opening the door, I actually stepped back. And I had never done that before. I had never, ever stepped back. Yeah. Whatever my first intention was, that was my intention. That's the way I've always lived. Your first intention is the right intention, you know? And I remember sitting outside going, I can't do it. And everything in my life, even if I want to kill him, even if I'll be a piece of shit, you know, because... I grew up in the same situation with you, you know, I came from a house that they were very loving and stuff, and not, but at the same hint, they weren't ordinary parents. So that little insecurity has always existed. Like you yeah, said that yeah. you walk into a room and you see all these kids, you know, do you think that even you that first week, 
you were acting out. You didn't want to be there. In the back of your mind, you knew it wasn't going to work anyway. You couldn't be around these fucking kids. They weren't like you. And if they found out about you, they wouldn't like you. Cause yeah. I, like, how long did it take you to think about your story and bring it out in the forefront? Because a lot of people wouldn't do it. They would just shut up and not yeah. have parties. What did your parents do? All their doctors. Next. You know, it's weird. Sometimes I would, I would, uh, I used my story. I kind of put it in front of me so I wouldn't have to really live with it, even though I obviously experienced it. But, you know, you push it down inside of you. You don't feel it for a while. It's only a matter of time before it's going to catch up with you. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't, uh, you know, some people, as a young guy, I either had to hijack a fucking room and hold it hostage, usually with humor or just being obnoxious, or I sat in the back and I judged everybody. You know, I just hid in the back. Those were those my two default modes. It was very difficult for me to just be. In a way, it still kind of is because I didn't know. Now I don't. It's easier for me to do now, but I had to. You know, you know, and I'm not exactly sure. You may know, but you know, you have to size people up very quickly. Are you going to fucking hurt me, or are we going to? You know, are we? There's no real relationships, just trade agreements. You know, I'm going to try to give you something of mine that I do not value for something of yours that you do value. And that's it. It's a hustle. It's a game. And so I don't live my life that way anymore, but it was hard to come out of that and just be, just exist and go, you know, that was a part of my life. It's not my life. Most of the people in the world don't live like that. And I don't need to force them to. I don't need to bring them down to my level, nor do I need to go up to their level. I just need to be at my own level and just kind of get comfortable with being me, which took a while. You know, if you live, we all go back through our creative careers. I look at improv because I love doing improv. Because you get to be someone new every two fucking minutes. It's not even like stand-up where, you know, you could do an hour. You're you for an hour. But stand-up, it's like new me, new me, new me. You know, I'm in different characters for the whole hour of that show. You know, how schizophrenic is that? But just now, even in stand-up, I'm finally getting it. Because you and I did a show, what, maybe about a month ago. ago. You know, just now, 16 years into the game, 15 or 16 years into the game, am I getting really comfortable with just saying what I want to say on stage? And I think... We talked on our way over here. I said, you couldn't give me a million dollars to be young again. And I, there's a certain grace and dignity with all of the scars and wounds you have on you and all of the shiny shit too of just the wisdom that comes with getting older that I wouldn't, that is priceless to me. Did it, and I'm sorry if it's too personal, but like uh, I'm lucky because I, I had a bad background I don't even want to say bad background but I've had a different childhood like everyone here is, everyone has a different level of what's bad what's good but uh, I'm I'm fortunate my mother died but that my children are adopted like to me that f- feels fortunate because when I look at my kids I don't see my past you know mm-hmm. I don't see my mother's pain or because they don't physically look like anyone in my family yeah is, is that was that ever a monkey on your back when it came towards to your children well poverty when my when my son was first born really messed with me because I thought that was going to be you know I was working at Starbucks taking the garbage out and you know had eaten broken muffins because we didn't have enough money to buy his Similac formula and for us to eat and you were doing improv on the weekend doing stand up and you know I book I think I booked a premium blend which is like 2500 bucks you know everyone thinks oh you're doing stand up you're making hundred million dollars yeah. it's like it was twenty five hundred dollars and a joint after was twenty four ninety nine. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, so like <laughs> making shit on the game. So Wow, your wife really <laughs> does love you. <laughs> yeah, I told her it's funny you say that because I said, look, 
I just, I was going to fucking die trying, you know, I was just going to give it everything that I had. And I said, just don't leave until you get paid. That's what I told her. I go, just please stick around. So at least you leave this with something. <laughs> I was half kidding and half being honest. Cause I thought if she's going to leave, please yeah. just get yours before you do. But she's, she's amazing. And she's, uh, my friends call her St. Katie. I'm sure. <laughs> the struggle is what gets my dick hard. Does it get your dick hard knowing where you are and knowing what you do? You walk into a room to pitch at USA or CBS and they've got the VP and this guy and that guy and you're sitting there and you're judging them. You're not judging them. You're trying to, this motherfucker went to Harvard. This motherfucker plays golf on the weekend. This motherfucker grew up and you're like, if they only knew what I see. Yeah. Do you ever get that? Like, if these motherfuckers ever had an idea. It took me a long time to learn how to tell my story in a room of people that had never lived anything like that. Because it can come off. I don't think I'm an intimidating guy, but there's an old Jewish saying that says, if two people say you're drunk, lie down. You know? So if my face comes off, like, like there's subtleties. Like, where we come from, if, if, I, if you're a threat, then I got to shut you down right away. Then I got to go there real quick. So it's right, it's right within arm's reach. And so if you're getting animated and you're telling a story to executives that had a very wonderful life with loving parents and nice places and nice schools, they don't, it can, they be, can become very jarred very easily. You know what I mean? So I just like performing stand-up or doing anything else. I'm selling something to them. And I have to remember that they're my customers and hopefully my clients. And we work together. We have a business relationship. So if I put that in my mind, I find if I walk in wanting something or needing something, I'm fucked. I go in and I share what I have. And if they want it, that's completely up to them. If they don't, that's none of my business. I go back in the car, same thing I do when I do a set. I take 15 minutes. What did I like about what I just did? And what do I not like and can improve on? And then after that, if I start thinking about it the rest of the day, I go, I'm done with that. I'm done. I'm not going to revisit that. It's hard to share uh, your personal story, I feel, because when you're in a situation like that where it's a business situation, but part of it is got to tell about yourself yeah. to people that haven't, like Joey said, had experiences like that, it's really easy to blur the fucking line of they want to do business with you because like, you have to look like you're together even though you're sharing this mm -hmm. terrible thing that happened to you, right? That's what I always try when I do share the stories to make them even if it's serious, to find a, a way to tell them if lighthearted is even the right word, in a way where it doesn't put any emotional pressure on them to experience it. So it's a voyeuristic experience for them. I don't sit them in it, as opposed to, say, if I was going to do it in a theatrical environment. I might go a little farther to hook the audience in. I might do different things with my voices that I've learned as an actor to bring them in a little bit. And I watch people's posture and what they're doing. If, I'm, if they're moving in a little bit closer to me, and I'm watching their face, you know, I have to look at the level of my voices. And I learned all this from doing stand-up, you know, and theater of just, you know, what kind of impact am I having on this person? Is it a theatrical impact or, or can I, if I've gone too far, can I get it back around to business, you know? It's really scary sometimes. Like I've always have, I've always, because of my background, been very insecure because I've always said to myself, do they know? Do these people know? Mm -hmm. They know, you know, that whatever, you know, I've seen shit. And how do you feel about it? Do you feel insecure at all, ever? Sometimes. I think um, 
this guy, this guy said something to me once that I thought was great. He goes, hey, kid, you ever been in a hula hoop? And I go, what are you talking Like the thing you spin your hips around with? He goes, yeah. You ever been fucking in a hula hoop? And I go, yes, I have. And he goes, all right, pretend you're standing and there's a hula hoop at your feet. Can you do that? And I go, yes, I can. He goes, all right, everything inside the hula hoop is your business. Everything outside of the fucking hula hoop is none of your business. <laughs> and I thought, when I start to go there, it's my mind playing tricks on me. Because people don't get out. And 95% of the reason why they don't get out is they let their thinking shackle them to the fucking ground. And we can't escape that thinking. It will never <clears> go away. <throat> It'll always come back. But I think now, and this is part of getting older like we were talking about, when those thoughts start to come, I go, that's my mind coming out. It's coming out to get me. <clears throat> it's that negative thinking coming out to get me. Now, I'm not a positive guy all the time. I don't want to come across like that at all. But these are the tricks that I use on myself to get myself out of it because the stakes are high. This is how I buy my groceries. This is how my kid eats. This is how my son goes to Little League. This is how my daughter goes to dance class. And even that can start to scare the shit out of me because I go, well, if I fuck up, they don't get to do those things. But that's negative thinking too. I remember when I uh, first got out of prison, I got my wife pregnant at the time. And I fucking lost it, Felicia. Like, I don't usually lose it, but I lost it because of the dumb talking. It yeah. just beat me. It just beats you, you know. I'll never fucking produce. I'll never do this. Never, never, never. And it's so weird how 30 years later I look at life and sometimes you get into a situation and your income gets raised. Like, you don't, you know your income needs to get raised. And subconsciously, you raise your income. And you're like, for years doing comedy, I made $600 a fucking month. And now I'm doing this. And also, yeah. you see the results and you get more into it. It's so weird. And eventually, all those old fucking thoughts go away. Yes. That's how it does for me. I, yeah, I yeah. still, listen, before I go do a fucking set, 20 minutes before I go on stage, I always got to piss. Always got to piss, and I start getting tired. <laughs> and that tiredness is like, maybe I should just take a nap and cancel. Yeah. The, like, yeah. while I'm at the gig, I'm yeah. thinking this to myself. Like, you're next, Joey. I get this fucking tiredness <laughs> over me. And I read that Art of War book, War of Art, by John whatever. He wrote uh, The Legend of Bag of Ants. He, mm -hmm. And he wrote it from artistic value. And he was like, you know, it's so weird how we will do anything to distract our career. Everybody knows what they need to do in this life. Listen, I need to lose 100 pounds. Got to go to the Y. Got to eat carrots. Got to go to jumping jacks. We know it. Yeah. But we'll do everything to take yes. us off that path. You know, uh, as a comic, I always want to learn to write. I spent, Felicia, and, and I can't, I spent as much, Samuel French has a car that I bought him. I've spent as much in cocaine over in L.A. <laughs> have I done as Samuel French. Samuel French owes me a fucking car. I bought every writing book there is. Yeah. I read Same them, here. but I never did nothing. Writing is sitting down and writing. You don't need, nobody can read, nobody can teach you. Just write. You'll teach yourself and eventually fold. And it's so weird. All these stories that you have, have you written them about your family? I'm doing it now and it's, it's uh, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm <clears throat> I've outlined what I don't, I, I have an outline of something that I don't know what artistic form it will take. To be honest with you, I have been, just there's something about the term one man show that really bothers me. But I like telling stories live, almost in the vein that we're talking here. And I want to do it, and I have a tentative name for it called uh, Before I Forget. Because with my own children, I'm really starting to forget, because you know, it's so much about them. And in a way, I feel a slight hypocrisy by going, study in school and don't do, you know, because I, I didn't do any of that. I didn't do any of that. 
to many a degree. And so I want to put, I, I, I want to make it more about the other side of everything, about what we're talking about, how to get out of negative thinking, not in some self-help type of way, but just a real, like, I am a parent now, I'm trying to be a good husband, I'm trying to be a good father to two children, this is where I came from. Because I was at the park the other day and this guy kicked my feet, he wasn't paying attention, he was like, you know, you're walking, you're fake kicking like a can or something, you know, like a rock, and he kicked my foot. And the voice, and I looked at him, and all I wanted was like a, hey, I'm sorry. But I immediately felt disrespected. And it was one of these California douchebag guys that, you know, there's this weird unwritten rule out here that you could say anything or do anything, but it's never going to get physical. You know, it's just weird. Guys act like that out here. I don't know why. And so I got hysterical in my mind, and I was just going to soccer punch this guy and just fucking shellack him with kicks and punches right in the park. My two kids are playing there. And it was such a deep, visceral reaction um, that I wondered why I had it and why would I show my children the side of me, you know? And that was kind of the catalyst for it. I didn't do anything. I just had to get up and, and walk away, which is, you know, I lived another day. I got to play with my kids. I didn't have to. I can't emotionally, uh, uh, you know, when you write those checks, when you act out emotionally, I can't. When, when, the, when those checks get to wherever they need to and I got to pay for the check that I just wrote, I can't do it. I was at the improv and a guy, this is the only thing that's happened in the, like the last 10 years, 10 years of my sobriety. A guy's kicking my chair like this from behind, you know, in the back of the showroom. And uh, I'm like, hey, can you please stop kicking my chair? He's like, oh, the bench is slippery, you know? And I'm like, well, all right, I'll stop kicking my fucking chair. I'm using your chair to have my foot. And he keeps kicking it. I go, please stop kicking my chair. It's the only time. He kept kicking. I turned around. I threw the fucking table. There's a show going on. I threw the table down on the ground, and I just start fucking kicking the guy. And I'm like, you motherfucker. You want to kick Rose? people? On Melrose. Oh. You motherfucker. Oh, and uh, <clears throat> and I just stopped, and people were like, oh, hey. And the door guy's there, and I go, ah, you know what? I'm real sorry. So I put the table back up, and I tapped the guy in the leg, and I'm like, uh, sorry for kicking you, sir. <laughs> And I left. I was emotionally hungover for six months. If I think about it too much now, my stomach turns. I can't do it. I just can't do it. No, it's tough. It's oh, totally tough. It, that whatever that chemical is that's released that you know where you have to do that. I cannot. My body. Nah, ugh, it's too much. Because then you go, oh, I'm that guy now. So all right, now we got a little deuce deuce under the thing, and I'm gonna call the man and the whole thing. You know, my that's where my brain goes. Like fuck all this we're moving to Chicago I'm gonna put a crew together like it'll just go it'll just my mind will just fly off in that direction so I can't even I can't even go there it's tough because I get very mad when people don't uh, claim responsibility for things uh, Felicia and I went for coffee the other day we've been talking about it for three oh, days I know it kind of has been bothering us we've been talking us. about it for three days that you know I thought about it when I left we were walking you know I come over at night you wanna go to where we met the coffee shop yeah and as we're walking some girl is coming at us with a helmet and a bike and you see a small street it's a small sidewalk it's a small sidewalk I'm sorry you think you're gonna slow down this bitch looked straight at us and expected us to part didn't say I'm sorry didn't ring her bell but she was going so fast by the time we recognized how fast she was going we literally had to just in time jump out of the way and it's just like now, how 10 years ago rude. I got in my car Oh, yeah. And hunted her down. And I wouldn't have smacked her, but I would have made her say I'm sorry. Yeah. Just because that's how my head works. Like, listen, call the cops if you want, but you're going to fucking apologize to Felicia. 
Yeah. Me, I don't give a fuck. But yeah. you gotta do, you know. And if it was a guy that was having a bad day, I'd understand it. But it was a woman in L.A. And yeah. Sometimes they could be fucking worse than the guys. You know. Sometimes they don't give a fuck. They suck a dick. They think the guy's an executive producer, and now they're walking around giving orders, and they forget that this ain't the fucking set. So it's they're really also weird. more susceptible to flying dicks, as we have yes. flying yes. cocks, flying cocks, <laughs> as we have ascertained earlier. I, uh, you know, <laughs> I have calmed down over the last thirty years, but it's still there. And yeah. I respect it. It's very much in there. And I respect them. It's something. It's luggage from your youth that you yeah. bring with you. you know, but what you exactly do you think it it is? It's just about uh, someone not uh, seeing your boundary. Like, what is it that really pisses you off about it? That makes you go off like that in a situation like that? That that is directly related to your childhood. What is it exactly? I think it's. I think anything about feeling disrespected or if someone makes me feel stupid, that's another real, like if they're treating me like I'm dumb and I don't know what's going on. I think it is, I heard this great saying, if it's a, if you're hysterical, it's historical. Like if, it, if that's how, right, yeah. how deep the I've thing runs, you know? But I just think it's like, I took a lot of shit. I got the shit kicked out of me a lot when I was a kid. I made a choice that I w it wasn't gonna happen anymore. And if this stranger's just gonna come up and kick my foot, which may have been an accident to him, I associate that with this guy thinks he can just come up and start slapping me. Like I marry the two together. Wrong or right, I think that's what happens. And so then I want to take it to a very negative place very fast, but I can't do that anymore. I, uh, my first week in LA, I went to the improv like everybody does. At the time I had a very attractive girlfriend, you know, really attractive, really loose, cleavage, and I was sat at the bar with her for fucking an hour waiting. You know, when you have a spot in the improv when you first get here, if your spot's at midnight, you're there at 801. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know what I'm saying? So I was there at 801, the action. I mean, I can't believe I have a spot at the improv. I'm with this broad. I'm with this girl. We moved here together. I'm, at, I'm with her at the bar sitting there, and there's a bunch of comics behind me, you know. And I'm sitting there with her talking, talking. They come get me. They go, you're up next. I go in. I do my spot. I get off. And one of the comics is sitting there talking like fucking to fucking piranhas. I'm the type of guy, when I come from, you, you look at a table, you don't have to say nothing to my fucking girlfriend. You don't have to say nothing to her. You know what I'm saying? You want to say something from across the way, you want to talk. But on the other hand, I got to say something to her because she's not, she doesn't yeah, have yeah, my yeah. mentality. Where I come from, Felicia's got to tell the guy, listen, here it is. Say what you got to say. The guy I'm with is a fucking gorilla. You don't want to be here. You don't need this in your life on a Saturday night. Yeah. That, but she didn't know either. You follow me? She didn't yeah, fucking yeah, yeah, know yeah. either. They think that, oh, he's so nice. What the fuck? <laughs> Tell this fucking Momo to get the fuck out of here. And I came back, and that was my first reaction. I mean, at that time, I didn't know L.A. I still had, you know. Yeah. I was living in bold, and I'm like, that's the type of guy. I don't like those things. You can talk to, you can talk to Felicia all you want if I'm with her. It's when you sit there and you're thinking you're being cute. And I walked up to the comic and I said, hey, you got about a second to get up. And he had his buddies with him and they turned and they knew I meant business. I didn't give a fuck. And then the manager came over and shook my hand. And it's funny because I seen the comic this week in uh, Arizona. He came and tried to do a guest spot. Oh, get the fuck really? out of my face. <laughs> Same guy. I've been calling you all week to get the fuck out of my guest spot, you fucking mutt. But it's weird, like, till this day. <laughs> till this day. And that's the type... If you come at me and call me a fat fuck, I won't get mad at you. Yeah. There's so many things I won't get mad at you for. It's 
the illusion in my mind thinking that you think for one second you could get over on me. Yeah, yeah. That's where the line ends. Like for years I did blow and I would go on movie sets and you know they treat you, do this today and we'll call you next week when we have another show and you go in there, you know, that shit ended when I stopped doing blow. Now I stick to my fucking guns and I control myself. It's the thought that somebody might think for one second that they're cute. That's yeah, where my yeah. world fucking ends. Yeah. That's where it ends. And I'm sorry, that's just who I am and you know, I try to change it, but I don't want to change that part of me. Yeah. I just don't. Well, it keeps you sharp. That's too. what keeps me fucking sharp. Yeah. There's things you do, and there's things you don't do. Yes, I called Eddie Bravo. I go, do me a favor. Tell your wife, I said, uh, happy Mother's Day. He goes, why don't you call her yourself? Where I come from, you don't call you somebody's don't do fucking wife. Yeah. Okay? That's it. So there's yeah, no yeah. misunderstandings. Yeah, yeah. There's never a misunderstanding. There shouldn't be a misunderstanding. Yeah. Why the fuck are you calling my wife at the house? Yeah, yeah. Call me, and I'll give it a fucking minute. Don't call my fucking wife. Yeah, for sure. You know, those are the little rules. They're uncommon rules. They're running right now. People are going, Joey. Why the fuck are you saying that? You sound like an asshole. No. There's rules. There's rules, man. There's yeah. rules that you should know. Well, there's rules. People have died for breaking those fucking rules. And there's little rules, subtle fucking rules. You don't need to say nothing. You don't need to say nothing to my fucking wife. You yeah. gotta address me. Address me. Don't say. Don't even look at the fucking bitch. You know, I'm one of those guys. I'm very still. There's things that you do and there's things you don't fucking do. And there's guys that think they're cute and those are the motherfuckers that piss me off. The gorillas, the ones that do shit and they don't know. It's like when you get cut, cut off on the 405. And some people put their hand up and go like this. I'm sorry. And it fucking happens. But then you get certain fucking people that just cut you off and look straight. Yeah. I'm going to follow you and throw a paint can at you. I got a, <laughs> I got a supply of shit in my car to throw at a motherfucker. You know, they bent their car. You know what I'm saying? You know, in the old school, somebody comes, you know, in L.A., you ever been on a line, you're going to get in, and an Acura or a fucking BMW cuts you off, and you're like, ain't this a bitch? And you're like, you know what? Ten years ago, I would have had an Electra 225, one of those 1973 Cadillacs. I would have dented that car so hard, you can't fix it. Yeah. Those old Cadillacs, those old Lincoln Mercury's, oh, yeah. you put a dent in a the car, they're not fixing it today. And I can't do that no more. My it's grandfather little things used to kid. keep a, uh, a hatchet under his, uh, a fucking hatchet, like a tomahawk hatchet. And one guy, remember we were driving, we went to the Aldi's, which was like, I don't remember all these, like pre-Costco warehouse type of thing, buying generic sodas. It was all generic. And he goes, hey, old man, do you fuck your old lady as slow as you drive? It was a biker. And he thought, oh, here's some 70-year-old guy. He gets, jumps out of the car with the fucking hatchet. The guy had his arm. Hanging on, he was in a convertible. My grandfather swung the hatchet down. The guy just fucking moved his arm out. You see the car take off and zigzag into traffic with just the handle of the fucking hatchet because the blade went into the fucking car. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> said you did set stuff right with your mother was she able to own what she did I don't think so you know um, actually we uh, I, I shook her down for a pool cue once when I was younger and I was very embarrassed about that I, I you know we we had stopped seeing each other I saw her on the street and I was hustling pool at the time and I wanted this Muchi pool cue and I said you got to fucking buy you you know what you did to me you're going to the bank right now you're getting out three hundred dollars and you're going to give it to me so I can get this pool cue. You're going to go with me to the pool hall so I can pay this kid. And I had always felt ashamed that I did that. You know, whether or not she did what she did, it's not, you know, it's not, I'm, I shouldn't treat people that way. Hula hoop, everything in the hula hoop, my business, outside is none of my business. So I wrote her a letter and I paid her back for the cue years later. I said, I'm sorry. I wish I had never done that. 
please forgive me. And I said, I can't. And then I said, I'm, I can't imagine what it must have been like for you to try to raise a child, dealing, carrying the load you're carrying. Didn't talk to her, found out she was terminally ill, called down to the uh, hospital, playing a bit of phone tag. And then she just left a message for me. So we actually never spoke before she died. She said that um, she had gotten the letter and that she was just very proud of me for everything that I had done. But uh, she never, nor, nor do I expect her to. I have, I have forgiven her. And so there's no apology needed. There's no, because there's no malice in me for anything that she did. Well, <clears throat> when people are so young and they go through something like that, even into their 20s and their early 30s, you know, you don't have the perspective as we do. Exactly. I don't know how old you are now, but I'm in my 40s. 22. Uh, <laughs> liar. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, when you get a certain age, like, uh, like um, I had a very strange relationship with both my mother and father, but when my kids came and I had to take care of my babies, you understand, wow, no matter what the fuck she did, she still picked me up and fed me and did stuff like you realize the responsibility that she had and she just wasn't able to do it correctly like you you start to understand yeah there is a but there is a everything is gray because that's just how life is mm -hmm. you don't know what that person was going through you were six you have no idea what she was going through everybody's carrying their own cross everybody has their own thing and uh you know, the best thing with you was that you at least got back to connect with her and put everything, yeah. you know, bury everything. And that's, that's like my mother died sudden. My anger from my mother was that she left me in this world. How could you do something like this? You couldn't cut a deal when you hit the fence? St. Peter put me back there for fucking 10 more years. I'll do it right. You could yeah. do fucking something, you know? We pick up anger, you know? And uh, everybody has anger. I have a friend that his father never went to watch him play football until this day. He just realized when he was 20. He didn't talk to him for 12 years. I want to smack him in the fucking mouth. But he didn't understand what his father was going through all those yeah. years. In the 70s, your mother stayed home and your dad worked 16 hours a day. That's it. There was no well, family time. Your fucking mother. You, you'd see her going to shop, right? You'd see her going to the butcher. And that's what you did in the 70s and 60s. Yeah. There was no, we don't spend quality time together. Father got home at 8. He fucking took his shoes off. He ate dinner. He went to bed. Yeah. You know, and he was pissed at him. So... We all have different angers towards our parents. It's 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 putting it away, you know. I I, I wish I had the opportunity you had because at least you got to answer some questions. I never got a lot of. I had that shit in my life. Where, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, drugs and bars, and and I always wanted more answers and I never got them. You know? A lot of women that needed to be saved. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> It's uh, it's just really interesting. I always found you interesting. Like I said, I met you through Kellum, really. Like I met you, but then Kellum Jim had, Kellum have given me something that he agent. wrote. Yeah, Kellum had given me something that you wrote, and uh, you know, it was amazing. It was fucking wild. It was creative. It was like holy fuck, they got to make this. But I heard you went on to do things, and like I said, I was in Atlanta, and I don't like SVU. I'm a Law and Order guy. SVU just, you know, I don't like it because it bothers me. I don't like to hear about rape. I just can't hear it. It's not. It doesn't cut with me too good. So I did it, and I tell you, Marissa Hardy, whatever her name was, yeah, is the shit. She's she was actress. fucking great to me. She was yeah. great. Forget about the actress. She was just solid. You yeah. know, uh, Ice Cube. Yeah, Ice T was cool. The other fucking guy was a scumbag. 
And I'll say it. I don't give a fuck. Belza. Oh. That dude was a <laughs> really? fucking scumbag on that fucking set. Are you serious? Yeah, we've had this discussion before where he was, it was cold out in New York. You're shooting at six in the morning in fucking New York in February and there's ice on the floor and I'm a mechanic under a car. And they couldn't pull. The wheel kept hitting the ice on the, you know, the when I'd roll. And he fucking took it out on me like it's my fucking fault. God, they, they wrote the fucking thing. <laughs> They wrote it, not me. So now they had to come pull me up. That's what they should have done in the first place. But you know, when they don't shovel yeah, a lot, the yeah. fucking floor, you know. But I always try to watch a couple minutes. And I was in Atlanta watching one, and it was about the war, about this girl who had uh, gotten raped in Iraq or whatever the fuck it is. And uh, she went to New York, and they cut a baby out. It was fucking gruesome, you know. And I'm sitting there going, "Wow, that was a great fucking episode." Because then the, the soldier that they Charge didn't really kill her. I've seen that episode. Yeah. You seen it? Yeah, yeah. Homie here, fucking oh, was his fucking name was at the end was wow. big letters. I, I didn't write that one, but I was I was a story editor, I think, for that episode. Yeah. And it just uh, I was so proud. I was really proud. And then he called me to do one of his shows, and I've been watching it. It's just amazing that uh, a lot of comics move here. You you do a couple sets with them, and then you they go on their own way or they go back. You're here, you know, and you still do your comedy, but you're a supervising producer on Suicide Kings, and now you're moving on. And regardless of what the fuck happened in your youth, you never let it take you down. You ended up in therapy or writing books about it. You just moved the fuck on. It was like a, a bug on your shoulder, which is how you should do it. And that's why, you know, I thought of you for the, for the podcast. Well, thank you so much uh, for coming and uh, doing the podcast. You know, we have a lot of young listeners and uh, uh, is there any advice that you could give uh, to anyone struggling uh, uh, right now with the, the direction in their life or, uh, you know? I think to be patient with yourself and to not judge your whole... Two things. Don't give your past enough power, just enough power to destroy your future if you're struggling. You know, if you did live through some things, you don't have to make those your identity. But there's a tremendous... Um, wealth of information in there and if you're leaning towards the negative then you're leaning in the wrong direction you know happiness is a choice it's not a default emotion it's a choice and a choice requires action so you may just have to take some action to get yourself out of whatever the struggle is and it will pass because a, a full life is one that includes great struggles great happinesses great joys great sadness that's where wisdom comes from and that's what you want to get Richard Pryor said you don't get old being stupid very true. Do you still do comedy? Oh, yeah. I just oh, did a yeah? show. Yeah, yeah. Just, oh, you do? Oh. Yeah, yeah. We never met before. I hate to be all like, have we met before? <laughs> yeah, I do a, a show at Radford Hall, which is my once a month show that I do, guaranteed. But I try to get up once, uh, at least once a week. It's You know, I'm working 60 hours a week. I coach, you know, I'm a parent. I, I assistant coach a little league. I coach a softball team, and I try to get up at least once a week, if not two or three times. I just did a two-man thing with Brady Novak over at th that, that Persona show at the Improv, uh -huh. which was great. He, he, he acted like he was my brother doing a graduation show at a comedy class, and then he introduced me, and I had just lost my eyesight in a factory accident, and we did, like, the worst, most dysfunctional version of who's on first. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, I'm up all the time. I got a, a movie coming out. Uh, no, like, I got a movie coming out. I'm in a movie that's coming out. I don't want to sound like a douchebag. But uh, I'm in the beginning of this movie called Gangster Squad. I play Josh Brolin's partner. And um, it's coming out, I think, October 17th or sometime near. Uh, trailers are actually in the movie theater right now. Uh -huh. What's the biggest uh, goal that you would like to achieve that you hide away in the deepest part of your heart? Uh, that you just, it's hard to say out loud because it's so grandiose. Do you have one of those? 
I'd like to be uh, the husband my wife thinks I am. Really? Yeah. Has nothing to do with money. Wow. And direct, right? <laughs> yeah, and direct. <laughs> yeah, and slide it right back into the business. No, you know what? I, 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 I don't. I don't consider myself a bad person, so hopefully it doesn't come off if I say that, but mm -hmm. I really want to care about the people that are in my life. You know, it's really important to me. So, like, that's the priority. I want to be a good guy. And now for a word from our sponsors. Listen, you walk around, maybe your nut hurts, go get it checked out. That's what ballcancer.com is all about. Go there, read the fucking paperwork. They got great stuff. But most importantly, check your nuts. Also, if you want to buy a shirt to support them, get yourself a little check your nut bag shirt. They give you 20% off. Just put BB 20% in the box. The shipping, everything is in there. Boom, you get a shirt. You get your nutsack checked up, and you live for an extra 10 years. Also, a little love to tainteddivision.com for concert posters and obscure little crazy shit. And also, I want to give a shout-out to my man, ronsmart.net, selling leathers and whatnot. This morning, he hit me up. He wanted to trade 4,000 followers. I don't know what the fuck he's talking about. But let's give him some love. And that's it. That's all I got for you, Felicia. <laughs> also, if you're thinking about buying anything on Amazon, do us a big favor and go to our website, uh, beautyandthebeast.com. There's a little Amazon placard on there. Click that. It'll take you right to Amazon. And it's just an accounting. You don't have to pay anything to us, but it's an accounting for Amazon to see that we do have listeners. And uh, we would appreciate if you would do that. Or, as I said earlier, when Joy wasn't showing me any love on that, go to iTunes and go to the Beauty and the Beast page. And please leave a nice little comment that would be awfully sweet. Thank you, Felicia. Thank you, Mick. You bad motherfucker. I wish you luck. I'm at the Improv Irvine on May 24th, 949-854-5544. Whatever the fuck the number is, go to the webpage. Get some tickets. That's all I got for you, cocksuckers. 8 o'clock in Irvine. All right. All right, beautiful. <laughs>